Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful weekend. I'm overjoyed that you are joining us. You've probably heard the phrase, ready, willing, and able, right? And, and I think we, we understand exactly what that means. Um, if you are ready, willing, and able, it means that you are all in, that you, uh, that you are not only excited to do it, but you're willing to do it, and you also have the ability to see it through to the end. And, and so if somebody comes to us and says, I'm ready, willing, and able, we have little concern that they're going to be able to accomplish what we want them to do. But there's a problem with that phrase, too, because if any one of those three things falls short, the whole process starts to stumble, right? Ready, willing, and able, those kind of have to go together. I found this out as a young man. Um, as a kid growing up in Grand Junction, uh, I, was, I was weighed a whole 75 pounds. Now, I enjoyed sports. I liked playing sports. And so as a kid, you kind of have the whole run of sports that you're able to play. Like you can sign up for almost anything that you want. But I would say this, as a 75 pounder, there were probably some sports that I should have signed up for and some sports that I shouldn't have signed up for. But there's a little bit of a problem and a little bit of a disconnect in my mind as a 75 pound kid. So my dad looked at my size, my shape, my body type, and he said, you know what? I'm going to sign Tim up for baseball. So that's what he did. My dad signed me up for Little League. And at 75 pounds, that would have worked just fine. The only problem was I didn't want to play baseball. Like I, I had no interest in playing baseball. It wasn't exciting. Um, I, I didn't have, I wasn't excited by the pace of play. I, I didn't know any of the kids that were playing baseball. And so my dad signed me up for baseball at the whopping size of 75 pounds. And I played. And between you and me and anyone that's watching this video and now my dad and mom and dad, um, I hated it. Like, I didn't enjoy playing baseball. And so my dad taught me a valuable lesson because after the first game, I told him, I said, I want to quit. I don't want to play baseball. I'm not willing to play baseball. And my dad said, no, once we start something, we finish it. We see it all the way through. So he made me play that entire season of baseball. And I'll be honest with you, the entire length of it, I was largely unwilling. That poses a little bit of a problem when you're playing a sport. Now, you contrast that with a sport that I actually was willing to play, that I wanted to play, football. Now, you remember how much I weighed, right? Yeah. So 75 pounds, baseball made a lot more sense. But I wanted nothing to do with it. You want to know what I was willing to play? Tackle football. Of course, right? I loved it. My mind was all in. My energy was all in. That's all I could think about. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to play was football. So I was willing 
But the trouble is, at 75 pounds, I was not very ready. I wasn't ready to go up against huge linemen. I wasn't ready to play against full-grown like men that had mustaches. Like I, I was willing, but to be honest, my body was not ready. Baseball, I was ready. I could play, but I wasn't willing. Today, that's exactly what we're going to look at. Jesus tells a parable to the Pharisees, the chief priests, and those in Jerusalem. And he talks about two sons that are asked by their father to go out and work. One was unwilling, but ended up going. The other was willing, but ended up not working at all. And so today, we're going to talk about the interplay of that in our lives as Christians and the point that Jesus was trying to get across to those Pharisees and to the people that he was speaking to. Today, what we're going to focus on is that Christ makes us not only ready, but also willing and able. And so let's jump into our text here this weekend. And it needs just a little bit of setting the scene exactly what was happening at this time. Uh, This is the Tuesday of Holy Week. So Jesus had entered into Jerusalem triumphantly on Palm Sunday. This now was Tuesday of that week. But leading up to our text here today, Jesus had gone into the temple courtyard and had been teaching. But not just teaching, he'd also been challenging. In fact, leading up to our text here today, Jesus had cleared the money changers out of the temple. Those that had turned God's place of worship into a place of commerce. And so on this Holy Week, things had started to come to a head. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the chief priests were looking for a way to get Jesus out of their way. They were looking for a way to be done with Christ. Now, on some level, maybe you would think, if it was you and I, maybe we would say, well, let's keep our head low. Let's let's not make any waves because I know that people are gunning for me. Yet in our text here today, we see that Jesus absolutely doesn't do that. In fact, he goes head on. He does that for love. He does that for the sake of the people that were listening to him. And so in our text here today, Jesus on that Tuesday of Holy Week is trying to address the Pharisees and the chief priests and make one last attempt to bring about repentance, to turn their path to see God's glory, and ultimately to see Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so that's what this parable today is meant to do. And so let's jump into our text. You're welcome to follow along on your screen or in your bulletin. I'm going to read for us beginning at verse 28 and read through verse 30. Jesus says this. He says, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not. He answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son, said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Two sons, two vastly different reactions. How they approached the father and the father's request was vastly different. Now understand, even in our text, I think even in our American culture, you can understand uh, the, the, the disparity of what was going on here. Let's talk about that first son. The father comes to him and says, son, go and work today in the vineyard. And his response is, I will not. 
Now, I'll be honest, I think our English translation here makes it even a little more polite than it was. Basically, he just said, straight up, no way. I'm not going to do it. Now, understand how offensive that would have been, especially within Israelite culture, um, even within our world. If, if, if um, you went to your child and said, clean up your room, and your son or your daughter just simply looked at you right in the eyes and said, no way. It's disrespectful at the very least, right? Within Israelite culture at this time, for a son to, to push back against his father and say, I will not do that, and do so in a way that gives no honor, no respect to his father, would have been incredibly offensive. Because think of how many other ways he could have said that. He could have said to his dad, you know what? I, I'm packed. My schedule is packed, dad. I can't do it now, but I'd be happy to do it later. He could have come up with with all kinds of softer ways to say to his father that I'm not going to go work, and yet he chooses to simply say, I will not. That wasn't accidental. It was purposeful. And so he, he, he spits in the face of his father with his I will not. But how about the second son? Father comes to him and asks the very same thing. And what does the second son say? He says, I'm happy to, right? He says to the father, I will, sir. And actually, uh, the English translates it, sir, but it's actually the word for Lord. So he, he, he almost gives this, this, uh, um, this deference, right? This honor. He says, Lord, I will. Right? He refers to his father with honor and respect. He says, I will absolutely do that. And yet, doesn't do a lick of it. It's kind of an amazing interchange here. And it's one that would have taken these Pharisees and these chief priests and these Sadducees by surprise because of the abruptness of what was happening. Now understand uh, the full context of what was going on there. This was the landowner. In fact, um, these kids probably didn't normally work out in the fields. In fact, it wasn't that they were just going off to work like they normally did. So something had to be happening here. The landowner needed his children to step up to the plate for the sake of the family, for the sake of the property, right? He is asking them to do something that is against their nature that they normally wouldn't do. And so right off the bat, there is something different going on here. But the landowner has every right to ask and to command his kids to help out. The responses were different and the actions were vastly different. The first son offensively says, I won't. But then ends up changing his mind and goes off and does it. And actually, uh, the, the word here for change his mind is the exact same word that we use and that the Bible uses for repent. Literally, he had a change of mind. So he was walking in one direction, turned around and decided to walk in the other. So the first son says, I will not, but he repents. He changes his mind and he goes and works for his father. The second son it's a whole different story. At least he gives the lip service. He says, Lord, I'm happy to. And yet, he doesn't show up. He doesn't actually show up for the task. He doesn't go and work, even though he claims to do it. He breaks the promise that he made to his father and simply doesn't show up. It's kind of an amazing parable. 
And Jesus uses this parable to teach those Pharisees and those Sadducees and to try to cause them to see themselves in this story, in this parable. But what's remarkable, what's even more fascinating is is that this happened in actual real life to possibly some of those very same Pharisees, Sadducees, and chief priests in Jerusalem. If you go and look in the book of John, Jesus has an interaction with Pharisees, chief priests, and Sadducees at the temple in Jerusalem. They haul an adulterous woman out. She had committed adultery. She had had, um, united herself sexually with somebody that wasn't her husband. And so this woman is brought out and she is about to be stoned to death. Everyone has a stone in their hand. And that's when Jesus steps in. What does he say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? You who are without sin cast the first stone. The result, they dropped their stones and walked away. But then amazingly, he turns to the woman, the adulterous woman, and says, woman, your sins are forgiven, but go and sin no more. Jesus tells this parable in the temple on that Tuesday, but they literally had lived it in that temple earlier. Jesus is trying anything he can to get through to these Pharisees and these Sadducees. He's doing anything he can to cause them to come to repentance, to change their ways, to change their path, and to embrace God and His love and Christ as as their Savior. So Jesus comes to them after the parable, and He asks this simple question. Which of the two did what the Father wanted? The first, they answered. Because it's kind of an easy answer, isn't it? The first did. Now, we'd step back and say, well, the first probably shouldn't have argued and he shouldn't have been disrespectful and he should have done it right off the bat. But ultimately, the first is the one that gets credit because he actually follows through. The second, it's very easy for us to label as hypocrisy. We see it in the parable And ironically, Jesus saw it right in front of him in the faces of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were there. Incredible amounts of hypocrisy. And so Jesus, on some level, is using this parable to try to shake them awake, to open their eyes from the the spiritual slumber that their hearts were in. The fact that Jesus Christ was right in front of them. He calls out their hypocrisy They answered correctly, right? They answered correctly that the first, the one that actually saw it through, was the one that was in the right. And that hypocrisy should be called out whenever whenever you see it. Their answer gave way and gave evidence of what they knew already in their hearts. But here's the amazing thing. On that Tuesday, that Tuesday of Holy Week, in the temple... Jesus doesn't give them any break. In fact, the words that he follows up with are incredibly jarring. And they're meant to be. Jesus says this, continuing on in our text. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. 
but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. Imagine how jarring that phrase would have been. Jesus is in the temple of Holy Week during Passover, and he says to all of the religious leaders that are there listening to him, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. It would have been an incredible statement for him to make. Because those tax collectors and those prostitutes were considered sinners. They were irredeemable. They weren't even worth the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying to reach out to. They were ceremonially unclean. They were barred from public worship in the temple area. They were outsiders that were looking in. And Jesus comes to the insiders and says to them, the outsiders are going into heaven before you are. Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. He's done it throughout his ministry, but he does so in an incredible way right in front of them. They are the second son who praised God with their mouths and yet their hearts were far from them. And so we have to ask ourselves the question then as we hear Jesus' parable here this morning. And I ask you, with which son do you more readily identify? The first or the second? It's a tough question. And actually, it's a question that maybe you think is a little bit unfair of me to ask, right? But it's exactly the question that Jesus was asking of those who were standing in front of him. It's the question that our text here this morning forces us and our hearts to grapple with. Do we more identify with that first son or with the second son? Maybe your answer is, I'd like to identify with neither. It's probably true. Because if we identify with that first son, we recognize our sinfulness. We recognize the times when we have stubbornly held on to sin and a sinful lifestyle, even when we knew full well that it was offensive to our God above and damaging to the people that he's put in our life. Maybe there are sins that we've committed in our past that we um, dare not admit, even to the people we love the most, to our spouse, to our kids, things that we, we have never even verbalized because they're so shameful to us. Maybe there are sins that you're holding on to right here this morning. That you hear the message of Jesus and yet you refuse to turn from your ways and repent of those sins. That somehow in some vain way you think you can hold on to your Savior and your sin at the very same time. And so maybe we identify with that first son and the sin that they had committed. But ultimately that son those prostitutes and tax collectors, of which one of Jesus' disciples was a tax collector. You wonder how he heard these words from Jesus, how it cut him to the bone. But at least those prostitutes and tax collectors repented of their sin and turned from their sinful lifestyle. They knew that they needed a Savior and that they had one in Jesus. The second son was lost lost in their own arrogance, lost in their own hypocrisy. And maybe far too often, that's the temptation Satan puts at our feet. You've tuned in to worship digitally on a weekend. You show up to church, maybe if you're here at CVL, you've been showing up in a parking lot, right? Um, you do the right things, you act the right way, you listen to the right music, you toe the line. And yet there can be a danger that if we 
feel as though we've done all these things that somehow God owes us. Or somehow God, and because of the things we've done, place us at least a few notches ahead of those prostitutes and tax collectors. And maybe it comes out in how we treat those that come into our church. Maybe it comes out in how we treat those that are in our world, our neighbors, our family, our friends. Maybe it comes out in this hypocritical arrogance that somehow our good life, good thoughts, and good acts have earned us the right to be in God's presence. So the first or the second? Neither. Or maybe the best answer is at times both. I think in each and every one of our lives, Satan would love us to go in either direction, to hold on to our sin at the detriment of our faith and our Savior, or to hold on to our arrogance, once again at the detriment of our faith and our Savior. Martin Luther once said this, we can't look at the cross and at our own sinfulness in ourselves at the same time. What he means by that is this kind of picture of if we lay our eyes on the cross, and, and, if, and if Christ is our all in all, then everything else falls somewhere else. But if we turn our eyes to our sin, if we turn our eyes to our, our, our sinful lifestyle and we hold on to that and we make that our primary, or if we hold on to our own selfishness, our own arrogance, our own hypocrisy, then our view of the cross is far behind us. And so what Martin Luther urges us to do is to keep our eyes on the cross. And when we do that, repentance is natural. When we keep our eyes on the cross, when we understand the price that was paid to win us back, the price that Christ paid to win you back, when we keep our eyes on the cross, then we let go of sin and arrogance and hypocrisy because all that matters is that we are loved and we have been bought at a price. That's the picture and the focus and the view that Jesus was trying to put in front of those Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and chief priests. It's absolutely what he puts in front of us. We keep our eyes on the cross. And when our eyes are on Jesus, he makes us not only ready, but also willing and able. I didn't tell you how my sports stories ended, right? Uh, baseball, I was ready but not very willing to play. Football, I was willing, but not very ready to play. And if you noticed, I conveniently left out the ability part of both of those stories, because here's how it turns out. Now, I think you would like to hear a story of triumph and glory. Here's what, what you would maybe like to hear, what maybe even part of me would like to hear that I played that baseball, that I stepped in, and at just the right moment, I hit a grand slam, drove everybody in, we won the game, I walked off triumphantly. Or in football, I was undersized, but I stepped into the game and I made just the right play, scored a touchdown, which put us over the top and sent us to state championships, right? In both of those stories, it would be a fantastic narrative if I was ready, willing, and I knocked it out of the park. Here's what actually happened. My very first 
uh, time up to bat in baseball at 75 pounds. I stood there in that batter's box and a pitcher who literally had a mustache uh, threw his fastball. And it didn't go across the plate, but it went straight into my thigh. In fact, I, afterwards, I had a bruise about this big on my thigh. I could see the stitching from the baseball in my leg for about two weeks. Just destroyed my leg. Now, if you play baseball, you know what that results in. Well, you get to go to first base, which you would think would be awesome. So I trotted over to first base and cried the whole way. And I thought, okay, luckily, hopefully, I'm going to get out and I can go back to the dugout. No such luck single. So I limped my way to second base, still crying, limped my way to third base, still crying, eventually limped my way all the way to home plate and scored a run. But in humility, um, I went all the way around those bases. Truth is, my ability in baseball was not spectacular. How about football? You'd think, okay, I'm willing, right? This is where I get to step up. Now, 75 pounds apparently does not make you really good at football, right? I got on the team and I got to play on the team and they made me a guard. Now, if you've ever played football, guards are supposed to be large men. I was not that. They made me a guard on the second team so that the defense would have somebody to knock around and beat up. <laughs> that was about all that I was good for on that football team was being a tackling dummy. And so these are not stories of triumph, ready, willing, and kind of able, but not knocking it out of the park. But in that, I think it's just a great lesson for us as believers, because here's the reality. Christ and our eyes on Christ make us ready, willing, and able, but not necessarily for glory. Not necessarily to be the hero of every single story, but here's what God tells us. He puts you in exactly the right place at the right time to make an impact. And that may not necessarily mean hitting the ball out of the park or scoring the winning touchdown, but it absolutely means that He has put you in the place you are at at this moment to make an impact on the people around you. I played baseball and I played football and I was not a star in either one of them, but I would not change a moment of it for anything. Because the people and the kids that I got to interact with, some of them are my best friends to this very day. I got to be on a team. I got to interact. I got to be an integral part of everything that happened within that, within that organization. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for you and I. I think far too often we look for ability. We look for the grand, amazing things to have happen. And when they don't happen, we question God about whether we should be in this spot or not. But the reality of it is, of it is is God takes care of the results. When you are ready and willing, He makes you able. He gives you opportunity to make an impact on the people around you. And that impact is sharing the good news that sins have indeed been forgiven. That those that you interact with in your life, your family, your friends, your communities, that in fact they have a Lord and Savior who has died for them, that values them enough to have stretched His arms and let His life be taken from Him so that their lives would be redeemed. Ready, willing, and able. That's exactly what you are. Not because of what you've done, not because of the past you have or you don't have, 
but because of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In the coming week, let's put ourselves at the foot of that cross. Let's be ready, willing, and able to share the good news that sins are forgiven. Amen.